Okay, here we go. I'd like to welcome Joe Mancini to True House Stories. <laughs> there he is. There he is, everyone. Welcome, John Mancini, our Scottish Italian friend. Welcome to True House Stories. And I'm so glad you've made it. And thank you for uh, thank you for inviting me to such a prestigious show. You are amongst some great, great, great. I've people. seen your guest lists. It's it's pretty phenomenal. So I was quite surprised when you got in touch with me. To be fair, <laughs> but um, it's great to be in such a prestigious company. That's where we have to tell the stories. Look, you know what? I've decided that there isn't really these stories recorded anywhere. And I'm proud to say we're the first to actually organize it and do it properly where we tell the story each time and people learn from it. Now, question is, do they really learn from it or they are just watching it to grab pieces and parts? But it's there for people to see for generations to come. And your story is like a puzzle to others. Each piece in the story brings it all together because we're all five degrees apart. Basically we've yep. all worked together along this long journey of house music. As you know, I mean, I was blessed to work with you at colors long time ago and, you know, and Scotland has another part to the scene. I mean, Scotland's a very important part to the house music scene, but we'll get to that in a minute. Everyone wants to know where the hell John Mancini came from. We know you have a mom and dad. And we know also that music finds you when you're a young kid. So I'm going to quiet myself and mute myself out. And I'm going to let you tell that story. So, John, you can have it from there, brother. Tell us okay. how it all began. Ta-da! <laughs> um, I'm, I'm Scottish born and bred. Uh, I have Italian roots. Uh, my grandparents were Italian. They come from a small village called Piscinisco in the Lazio uh, in, in southern Italy. Um, music, my first my first recollection, re- recollection of, of my music days would be, probably my inspiration would come from my uncles and my brother, who were big Billy Joel fans. I'm a huge Billy Joel fan, believe it or not. I'm a huge Billy Joel fan. So I was brought up on that sort of thing. Pink Floyd would be there. Uh, Glenn Campbell, um, that sort of 70s, early 70s, late 70s stuff. But I also liked disco. Disco was also a big thing that, that came along. But I had a huge passion for music from, from, from very, very early. Going through school, I would be into such things as, believe it or not, I was a big rock fan. would be Meatloaf, Iron Maiden, ACDC. I went through that stage as well. Um, I, th- I think when, you, when you're at school, you do go through different phases because different types of music come along that become very popular at certain times. But I count myself very lucky at the same time to be born in, in different youth cultures. Like, I, I was there when, when the hip-hop scene sort of started, and I really liked the hip-hop elements, uh, Grandmaster Flash, all that sort of stuff. And it would be the skateboarding scene as well, and I was big on BMX. That youth culture for me, was my teen years. Much can as I a group. So there you go. Can I ask you which BMX bike did you own? Uh, Monk. 
well, but, but big ones was the Harrow. Everybody liked the Harrow. That's right. Bob Harrow, Bob Harrow was, the, was the god. And then you had Eddie Fiola um, and all, all those sort of things. We were huge BMX fans. We didn't have much money, but we were into BMX. And BMX could be quite expensive at the same time. So uh, the BMX was, was fantastic. It went hand in hand with a lot of the music that was going on at the time. So skateboarding, BMX and uh, hip hop. Uh, that would be my teenage years, probably. Can I tell the people why you quit? Why you wanted a Harrow bike? Can I tell them? There you go. I'll tell you why. There was three bikes at that time. There was the Mongoose. There was a Harrow <laughs> bike, and I think uh, Redline. If I remember, I'm in back was quite big. I'm in back four, four or five bikes. Harrow, you could take one finger and lift the bike. If I remember correctly, my friend used to do that. He used to lift the bikes up. And it was so light because you guys were doing tricks with the with the front thing and the pegs. They wanted a very light bike, so the Harrow had that aerodynamic aluminum frame. That's why. Sorry, Bob Harrow was probably Bob Harrow was probably the, the the first superstar BMXer for me that I, that I knew of. And he had the bike that had the Skyway wheels, and it just was so iconic to to my generation. The Skyway wheels and the Harrow bike, and he was the guy that done the stunts in the movie ET. There, there's a history lesson on BMX. It was much bigger than that, but that's probably the most commercial part of what BMX was at that particular time. And I didn't stay too far from a great skate park here, which is in Livingston. Uh, sorry, I forgot to say, I, I come from Scotland. I live in central Scotland, halfway between Glasgow and Edinburgh. It's it's a small mining village. Um, it's, 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 it's effing cold. <laughs> it rains a lot. It can be very depressing. But at the same time, Scotland can be the most beautiful country in the world by a mile when it is sunny. It's just not that often very sunny. But if you've been to Scotland, you'll know how beautiful it is and you'll know how iconic it is. So back to music. Uh, I started collecting vinyl probably, probably just early 80s. And, and I would get a, a set of decks, which would be the mobile disco Citronics. And, and I started trying to be a particular DJ. I was never very comfortable being that front man. I didn't really talk on the mic much. It wasn't really my thing. But I just loved collecting music, and I loved playing music, and I loved making people dance. But when I started collecting vinyl, I was always the one who asked for... I was Everything, was, everything had to be a 12-inch. <laughs> that sounds a bit rude. But anyway, everything had to be 12 inches. If it was like... Lionel Richie, hello, have you got a 12-inch? <laughs> have you got a remix? Have you got, because the remix, the, sorry, the 12-inches always came with sometimes an extended version, but sometimes on the other side, you get some remix of one of the other tracks that he'd done. I just collected 12-inch records. That that was my thing. And my music collection grew and grew and grew. I, I currently sit, sorry, at the moment, with about 30,000 pieces of vinyl. That's what I have. That's what I'm, I've got them. I've got them, most of them in another house that, that, I, that I have. Um, but my collection and my vinyl junkie years and my addiction to vinyl grew and grew and grew through my teenage years. And that would eventually lead, when leaving school and becoming involved in the acid house scene. Oh, Acid House. Okay, so what year now are we talking now at Acid House? So if we go through all, all those teenage years when, when I was into, sorry, 
my, my teenage years also consisted of a lot of rock bands that you might know. There was a big Scottish scene with the rock bands, like Simple Minds. Uh, there would be Deacon Blue. Also, I liked stuff like U2. Uh, and that really was a huge thing uh, during my teenage years. A lot of the bands came through um, and they became massive. I mean, U2 was was probably the biggest band in the world at one point, and, and I was oh. a huge fan of U2. I'm trying to remember the club that U2 owned that I played at up there. They owned the kitchen and they owned the pod in Dublin, I think it was. That's it, the pod I played, Yes. The pod, uh, yeah, they owned that. I don't, I don't know if he still owns it. Uh, no, I don't think so. No, but I remember that 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 was his club, Bono's club, or something. Yeah, um, they they were really quite iconic for 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 me uh, growing up. I was a huge, massive fan, uh, and and actually, I know some of the, the guys who actually play in Simple Minds now. I'm friends with a couple of them. They're in Simple Minds, um, but that that was my, that was my teenage years, and just coming out, we, we were we were in it. Growing up in the eighties in the UK w- was pretty shit because you had the Thatcher years. You had you had Margaret Thatcher who was crushing Scottish people, not the Scottish people, but she didn't like Scottish people. She didn't like the miners. She didn't like working class. Um, I have respect for her as a leader, to be fair, because she, she 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 didn't take any shit, but um, she 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 made life pretty. Unbearable in the UK. But what do you mean? But what do you mean by unbearable? What was what was just some of the things that were going on up there that was part of the, the the minor strike? There was a big thing, minor strike. The minor strike really affected the whole of the UK. The miners went on strike at that particular time, uh, and I, I think it was over wages. I think it was over wages, and Maggie Thatcher went head to head with them, and she had the the riot police out every morning. They were battling. There was there was hundreds. There was loads killed. Actually, there was people killed. There was people injured. They would fight with the police. Uh, they would do picket lines outside the at the pits, and it was a pretty bleak time. I, th- I think they went on strike for like four, five, six months. It was really long, and the communities here would come together and they would they would collect food and give it to the miners. They would make collections to give it to the miners. And as, as I said, I stay in a, in a mining village. I only stay maybe three miles away from where the mine was. And it was pretty bleak. Uh, everything was was really quite shit in the UK, if I believe it or not. And then the Acid House scene came along and changed everything for, for the youth culture. Absolutely blew it apart. So that's what that the thing now. Let's say now this, because I remember from history speaking, because I lived it as you did as well. If I remember correctly, the Hacienda down south of you was already starting to bring this sound, correct? Yep. So were you catching that from that part or you guys did something different up there? What was... Um, I think think there was the, the Summer of Love was there in 1988. Which which came from Ibiza, the Hacienda were doing it before then, in some pockets probably around about the UK. Like so I think there was going in Sheffield. Glass, Yogi Houghton was probably doing something in '87, which in Edinburgh, Yogi's a very very well known DJ here. Oh yeah, classic legend. And there'll be other pockets round about, but there, there's a story that says that there was four guys came from Ibiza, which was Danny Ramplin, Nicky Holloway. 
Um, Paul Oakenfold. Was it four? I remember who the other one was. Oh, it's, it's Pete Tong too as well. That's the fourth one. You know, Pete, Pete, Pete would be doing other stuff before then as well. They were all doing stuff. But it all, always comes back to it's claimed that these four started Acid House and Rave, but I don't believe that for a minute. But they are pioneers in what was going on, and they do have a huge part to play in, in the history lesson of uh, Rave and, and, and the Acid House movement in, in the UK. Um, but there was pockets going before then. For me, there was pockets going before then. The Summer of Love came along in 88, and it was it started to explode. But the real explosion was probably 89, and it only took about six months, if that. And it was you would be getting influences from the Hacienda, um, and you would see you would hear of Danny Ramblin's Hume, and I think I think what was what was what was Paul Oakenfold's called? I think it was called was it? I can't even remember what that was called. But there was there was these, and you heard about them because they were getting press. They were getting they were coming stories in the paper, and you seen this. Because the Tories hated it. That's the Conservatives, who's Maggie Thatcher and stuff, they hated they hated youth culture as far as I was concerned. And this youth culture was exploding. It was coming through in such a pace. Um and they brought in actually a thing called the it was against party. It was called the oh, Shit, I wish I knew what that was. Are you talking about that thing where they passed, you couldn't have a rave? Yeah, or, yeah that was the Queen's ruling. I remember that. I think it was called, the, the, it, was, it was something to do with the four, some four beats. You couldn't have repetitive dance music. And they brought this law in and everybody rebelled against it. And that probably really helped the Acid House scene. Uh, and it exploded. It was exploding then. It was, there was underground parties starting and it became slightly overground. Because oh, kids, the criminal, and, the criminal justice act, the I criminal remember. justice act, the criminal justice. Act. I remember that because everybody was telling me, "Did you ever hear that?" I go, "Why is this? What is this thing? Oh, if you play the same beat repetitively, they can yep. shut you down." I'm like, "What?" That's what it was. You couldn't play a, a kick drum or whatever it was four or five, to eight beats in a row, and that's what the class is, the criminal justice act, and it just. <laughs> It just it just fired the flames. It just fanned fan the flames. It just fanned the flames for for the acid house culture. It was it was big then already, but it really boosted it and it helped. And kids had nothing to do in the eighties to 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 an extent. And the acid house scene was something that came along, and we grabbed it. We absolutely grabbed it and we hung on to it, and it just grew and grew and grew. It became our religion. That, Did that you have it. to do any kind of like, was it like a word of mouth thing that you guys started to do, or was it you had to go out and promote it like the old fashioned way with with flyering and that you you putting this because so, we talk about your first gigs. My, my 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 first gigs, my first gig probably I'd, I'd done a local thing, fifty people. Had had fifteen records and just played B sides and A sides. That's that that's a different one. But that that's <laughs> so that 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 photograph there is and that that is there. That's a guy called Callum Mackay who was was my buddy. This place is in a, a place called Whitburn, which is quite close to me. And the guy never turned up who played chart music. And the guy never turned up. And my 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 late good friend Eddie McMahon called me up and said, the guy's looking for a DJ. Can you come down? 
So I comes down and I had all the latest acid house tracks and I'd collected them then. And this was in early 89. And I just went down and blew the roof off because the kids, the kids actually knew what it was. And the guy behind the bar really freaked him out because he'd never seen this. He'd never seen this sort of tribal kids just up on top of seats and giving it this and they knew all the tracks and stuff. And he's going, what the f- is going on here? And he that freaked out. But we started, that would be my sort of home point from a DJing. And we built a following, I built a following, and we'd start running buses to the certain raves that were going about. And one of them happened to be the very first street rave. And street rave is, is a big part of me. <laughs> that that's uh, that's one of the, the gigs the street they've done. Street oh, that's the one pictures I have. So we're going to show no, some. There, there are other ones as well. The Keats Club and that's their their street. Oh, I'll, I'll put the so street rave. Street rave was started by two guys, a guy called Ricky McGowan, who you know very well, and a guy called Jim Mackay. And there was also, I think, a guy called Kevin Wilson, but he he just fell away in the early times. But Ricky so the original street rave picture. So that that that's a, that's a, so this is this is the four guys who basically ran, DJ'd or looked after Street Rave through the years. Uh, Ricky's on the right. That's me there. This was taken maybe three or four years ago, and that's Boney on the left. Ian Boney Clark was probably we were we were the residents from probably near the start. Boney was the original DJ from the very start. I joined a few weeks later, and they were still residents all through the years. And Jamsy, Jim Mackay is the guy with the in the purple. I think it's purple. I'm colorblind. So I think it's purple. And the Ricky and Jamsy were the guys who built it, looked after it, nurtured it, and made it what it became. We were just a part of it that we we were we were involved heavily, but they were the guys who basically created and ran Street Rev. And Street Rev grew and grew and grew. And it still goes to this day. And it's 30. 30, 32 years, 89. I think this is, I don't know, 33, So is the Air Pavilion the first place that you started? The very first pavilion, the very first street rave gig was called West Coast Jam and it was called, it was at the Air Pavilion. I think you've got a photograph of that. That is it. Now this, this place is hugely iconic, hugely iconic in Scotland and probably a lot of parts of the UK as well. And it's next. It's right next to a beach, and it's in the, it's in a place called Air. And we, to believe it or not, we ran nights days there on a Sunday afternoon. It started at two o'clock on the Sunday afternoon, and it finished at two in the morning on the sun, Monday morning. And it sold out nearly every week when it was on every every gig, which is pretty unheard of. And the only re, the only real club that I know that done Sundays would be Body and Soul. Is that right? Yeah, like a Sunday, a real Sunday event like that. That that's what it done, and it sold constantly. But Street Rave never rested on their laurels. They always took great satisfaction for doing gigs in really weird places. And probably the weirdest place that they done one is is Presswick Airport. <laughs> really, so the airport is along the road, and they booked the full airport, and they had a New Year's rave. In the concourse, where you check in, you check in, and there was a big long, and and that's where they had the rave. They had six, seven, eight thousand kids, gone out, gone absolutely nuts. 
to to rave. They had two or three rounds, but this was the main thing. Where you check in your bag, we set a stage up, and and it was it was it was really weird because you had all these kids who were raving in one part, and you had Her Majesty's Customs just around the corner. <laughs> so. Were the uh, airport still working at that the, rate? The airport is still working out. The airport is, is where big American planes would stop now. Like if there was any any US Air Force stuff, they would stop at this big airport because it has a big runway. Okay. And that's why it would stop there. And and that's that was my origins of uh, starting with Street Rave. And Street Rave, Street, Street Rave was... was they were pioneers as far as I was concerned in what they achieved at that particular time. They just grew and grew and grew, but they also done one-off smaller events. They also took over a club, which was called the Kitsch Club, which you have photographs as well. And it was just it was just great days to be a DJ, to be a, a youth. It was phenomenal times. It was it was absolutely long hair. <laughs> By the way, that's that is that's a that's a cola because I actually probably the only Scottish guy you'll ever meet who doesn't drink. <laughs> Which is quite unusual. You don't need to drink. You're funny without it. Laughing at me or laughing with me. That's okay. Apply the Scottish way. So it's um yeah, street they've street they've grew and grew for the first few years, and then probably in the mid nineties. Whereas we had we had we had guys, we were the first guys to bring the likes of David Morales, Frankie Knuckles, uh, Tony Humphreys, all these these guys. We 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 considered ourselves to be more quality than quantity. We were down the US house route, but we also in those days obviously there wasn't there wasn't that much selection to choose from. Well, I want to show this, the selection of how good this these guys were. Look at this. Ready? Look who they brought. 1993. Sister Sledge. So I think that was the, that was the, the third time we had Sister Sledge. We also had a diva. And a diva cancelled one time as well. And we got offered Sister Sledge. And, <laughs> and that's, we brought them. Kathy and all the girls and stuff. And I remember at that particular gig, which is just... It's not far from the Air Pavilion. And I stood and Kathy Sledge said to me at the time, I was just about to put them on stage, and she says, they were doing prayers. You know how they do that, prayers and the whole hands and all that stuff. And she says, I'm right in here. This is fantastic. I'm sitting going, let's have a great show, blah, 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 with Sister Sledge. Oh, wow. The iconic Sister Sledge. And I'm going, amen, brother. <laughs> We are family, Sister Sledge. We're doing it together. You became. And I just, it was just, it was just something else. I felt a bit odd when she asked me to come in, and it's like, I'm right in here. And I stood there, and it's one of those. It's a story to tell the grandkids, if that's what you want to say. No, it's this story great. will be there for them to see it soon. As this, as we put it up, they can watch it later. <laughs> Ricky, Ricky, and Jamsy were very. They were. They were always ahead of the the game. We picking. DJs and, and acts, their their influences came heavily from from a uh, the hacienda because the first guys we actually had up for the street rave event would be Graham Park and Mike Pickering. Look yeah, at Tony Humphreys, Frankie Bones, all the Americans coming over. So Frankie Frankie Bones, Frankie Bones runs a, a thing called 
what's this as a rave thing he does? Used to be at that time. It, what was it called? NASA was it? No, he does, he does a. Th- so I, the, the thing is that Frankie has the exact same logo, SR, as Street Rave. Oh, really? Said, I didn't know that. He said that he asked Ricky for permission to use it. What's it called? I don't know what it's called. Frankie did whatever it is. And he, it went for years. I think Frankie still does it. I don't even know if he does still does it. But it looks the exact same. It's the same font. It's the same logo. And he called it something rave. I can't remember what it is. But that, that's that's the story for Frankie Bones. The Ricky and Jamsy always brought American names, European names, from Claudio Coccoluto to uh, Tony Humphreys, David Morales, Frankie Knuckles. Frankie Knuckles is, 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 was my DJ idol. Frankie Knuckles. Who else? As many as as many I felt the same. What a wonderful man. May he rest I, met, I, met, I, met, I met Frankie on, on numerous occasions and I DJed with him a few times. And when I when I met him, I met him in Amsterdam again, he was with David Morales and I called him Mr. Knuckles because I had that much respect for him. And he's like, only my dad calls me that. <laughs> so that was uh, I just I just had so much respect for him. I just loved what he'd done. I loved what, he, mm. what he, his history and everything. So, anyway, so Street Dave went for still goes to this day, but but the the scene was splitting in the mid mid nineties, and it was becoming very very rave, very hardcore. Uh, Why weird. was that happening? Do you think at that time? I, I, don't, I think it went big, and I think there was a lot of elements came through. Like the prodigy, we we gave the prodigy the first gig up in Scotland, and there was stuff like that. There was a who else would be there? I don't really know. Enjoy would be ravey, um, all those sort of acts, and the scene sort of split. And I think that the the word rave became it's like a slightly dirty word. It wasn't a good word to use, and Ricky and that created colours off the back of. We, we still had Street Dave and it still went maybe once a year, twice a year, just to keep that element there. And it's a legacy brand now. But they wanted to go into the super club. So arena, the, which so was, the, there you go. That, that's the first, that's the very first opening night for Colours. It happened at the Vaults in Edinburgh. And as you can see, it sold out in a flash and it was Masters at Work. And that was the different route that we had went down. We had, We did have... David Morales and that Frankie Knuckles before then, but this was really stepping into something else. We wanted to go bigger. We wanted to be the super club. Yeah, that that's where it was. You had Cream coming along, you had Gatecrasher coming along in the UK, and you had a lot of other other Ministry. Ministry. Well, Ministry had came along as well. Ministry really probably changed changed the the outlook of everything. Mm-hmm. And and Rave was considered a slightly bad name. I don't like yeah. that word when you hear, you hear it. I go, oh, we we. I don't like it myself, but that's that's the the the, the early brand is still called Street Rave, and it's still still a thing very dear to my heart. So it's still there. It still still flies. Still flies. They've got they've got forty thousand fans on their page. They, hey, look, it is what it is. It's it's a brand that people remember with class. I'll still, still do three or four events a year, but it's legacy. It's legacy brands, and you will have Graham Park, Todd Terry. That, that sort of thing. Colours came along in 1995 and that's, I was really happy to be still involved with Straight Rave 
and I became the Colours resident with me and Boney still. And we were always house. We were always house. We liked asset house. We liked Italian house. We liked techno. But really, we were just house. We were US garage. We were UK house. And that, that's the sound that we always wear. And Colours grew and grew and, and exploded in Scotland. We, over the years, became probably the biggest promoters in Scotland. By a, by a mile. By a mile. There's a lot of good promoters and clubs that were coming along. You had like the Slam guys, Stuart and Ord. Uh, the Tunnel Club Club came along, which was a big club in Glasgow. It was a purpose-made, purpose-built uh, super club, which people all know. And then there was the infamous Archies. And the Archies, in my opinion, was the best club in the world. And I've been to a few clubs. I've played in a few clubs for Pasha. There's a flyer there for the Limelight in New York. That that was that was pretty strange. Uh, I've been lucky enough to do a, a lot of good clubs around the world. But the Archies coming along, and I was resident there for 20 years, really fortunate, was was absolute insanity. Yes, everybody. He played Limelight New York. Yeah. Must have been kind of wild for you coming into a church in New York City. <laughs> I didn't really know much about Limelight. Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.